0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Beige. On today's show...
1: In the next few weeks, MPs will have an important decision to make. If Parliament backs the deal, Britain can turn a corner.
0: With just three months to go until Britain is meant to leave the European Union, Conservative Party members now mostly want to go it alone, without a signed deal with Brussels. After a holiday reprieve, the Brexit circus starts up once again. My guests Joy Ladico and Georgina Godwin will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... Apple stock slumps as the tech giant warns of falling profits, saying China's sluggish economy is at the core of the issue. And we'll discuss what's behind a rise in the sale of physical books and dissect new findings that say screen time isn't actually so bad for children. All that plus our dogs truly are best friends. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Beach. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Joy ledeco columnists for The Evening Standard, and Georgina Godwin, journalist and Monocle presenter. Welcome both to the program. We begin with the UK's ever nearer jump into the unknown and certain chaos with Brexit. A new survey of members of the country's current just-about-ruling party, the Conservatives, has found that over half of its members would prefer a no-deal outcome in March, rather than accept Theresa May's current proposal for the UK's future relationship with Europe. Joy, uh, did you enjoy a nice uh, reprieve from a uh, Brexit chat over the holidays at all? Were you able to, to actually, get away I from did,
2: that? I did actually turn off and I was actually delighted um, but I had a slightly heavy heart that yeah. thought that actually it was all going to come back and I thought oh, it'll be you know, next week and actually immediately the surveys start coming out. Um, now this one is quite interesting. It's done by... Um, uh, Tim Bale and it's mm. found that pretty, on pretty much every question the Tory party membership just say no to Theresa May and normally the Tory party um, membership is quite loyal to the to the to prime their ruling prime minister or their leader um, but they are a very strange bunch they're quite niche um, I, I used to know them quite well because I was briefly married to a Tory who used to hold the local Tory party association drinks parties around mm. at my house and uh, they always thought I was a servant rather than uh, <laughs> one of their equals and they just they have these kind of quite hard line views and they kind of lobby their MP. And they're so the, the MPs who are going into Parliament have got this kind of quite... I mean, it's like we're only talking, you know, in the tens of thousands of membership, um, sitting there saying, oh, no, we don't like this. Oh, no, this sounds absolutely terrible. And they're reading a particular sort of conservative um, media, which is, as well as the kind of broadsheets, but also mm. sort of more specific sites. I and mean, this is it's quite a niche interest group here. Uh, and um, so they're the ones who are influencing their MPs to vote against... Theresa May's deal, and Theresa May may well lose her deal um, because her own side isn't supporting her. Hmm.
0: You know, Joey, we're increasingly seeing the the very real and pretty worrying consequences of a no deal outcome uh, in reporting as well. Uh, why would anyone want to create this situation? I guess some of the you know the dire uh, consequences we're hearing about.
2: Well, without wishing to be a. Uh, uh, um well, I'm afraid I've got to be rude. If you're sitting there thinking um, no deal and over the cliff mm-hmm. edge is a good idea, uh, I think you are acting against the interests of the UK. I mean, I would val- rather vote for Theresa May's deal than going over the cliff edge. So this is kind of hardcore political thinking. It's a straightforward opposition to the EU. It's a principled stance against the backstop, many of whom, many people of whom uh, who are saying this, I would challenge them to actually mm. go through the details and explain what the problem is, other than the fact there's going to be a slow and pragmatic exit from the EU rather than over the cliff edge. Um, you know, the, the, the warnings about what will happen to the economy uh, are so serious that, you know, Michael Gove, who was a Brexiteer, who is a Brexiteer, mm. um, stood up at the a farm, uh, farming conference and told farmers that if we had a no-deal Brexit, things like... Um, Tariffs on beef and lamb could be up to forty percent. Every single thing is at least up ten percent. You know, even he, uh, who believes very much in Brexit, thinks No Deal will be a disaster for the constituency he's currently representing, which is the farmers.
0: Georgina, how's your concern now uh, that we're in 2019? Uh, d- do you think about uh, Brexit much over the holidays? or?
1: Well, I, I mean, I sadly never really entirely switch off and, mm. and, and was thinking about it uh, quite a lot. I think one of the things that we need to put our minds to here is is to think about the language around this and the gap between metaphor and reality. So we are talking a lot about a clean break. So Mm. if you you define clean break, for instance, a sudden complete end to something such as a relationship or a period of time spent in a place, says the dictionary. Well, we're not suddenly never going to see France again. Mm. This is not a clean break. This is a shattered jagged, horrible thing uh, and I think that that language is very very misleading. I think that people are being, sure, are being asked a variety of questions but are they uh, we've seen in the past that we haven't been given enough information or that mm. some sectors of the, the population who perhaps only read one kind of media are not getting enough information. I think this particular survey uh, targeted at Tory members, as, as Joyce says, they are reading the Telegraph or, or whatever it is they're seeing one particular side of it. Right. But I think that that language Language, the use of that language is, is very, very problematic. Uh, I mean, clean break is, is, is one way to put it. But it, divorce is another way to say it. But even in divorce, I mean, there is always collateral damage. Mm. You know, we're not going to just be able to move house and forget our last partners. Uh, we may well st- st- still be sort of staying in the spare room.
0: Well, Ellen Berry, who's been on the show uh, from The New York Times, uh, wrote it this way today, there's a yawning gulf in perception of the economic impact of leaving the union without an agreement in this country. Does that square with you, Joyce?
2: Um, well, I think there's a yawning... G- I mean, if you read sort of papers like the Financial mm. Times, there is not a yawning gap. Mm. It's quite clear. Uh, and there's already a whole load of economic indicators mm. about the economy stalling. Um, I suppose what we don't see, and this is not dissimilar from 2008, uh, a lot of the impact of the financial crash was felt very far away in places, indeed, like Northern Ireland, mm. where you went from a five-day week to a three-day week in factories. So people are effectively losing 40% of their income in order just to keep the economy on the road. But... Um, you know the, the the impact will be felt in the city because, and already, you know, banks uh, are beginning to kind of shift their weight into Europe. But the first effects will always be felt. In the far more fragile industries across crunchy, which are manufacturing and farming,
1: mm. I, I mean, you you talk about Northern Ireland, Joy, mm. and I think that that's really really important. And I think that a lot of people's visceral dislike of this deal is to do with the backstop and and all the rest of it. And it, the backstop has be- has become a bad word yeah. for a lot of people. But uh, it, it it's an insurance policy. It's it's a backup plan. It's it's you know if if, if we don't have that uh it, it, it hopefully we'll never have to use it uh but we, we need to ensure that the border between Northern mm. Ireland and, and Ireland remains open and invisible otherwise I mean there I think it's the, I think the figures are something like 147 uh, 157 different areas of cross-border work and cooperation in Ireland north and south those will stop
2: yeah. I, I mean
1: you know I mean, so, so the, we, the
2: electric you know when we talked about the barges in the Irish Sea which carried electricity generators it's because currently there is a cross Northern Ireland uh, Republic of Ireland electricity deal which just stops. So we actually have to provide a a, a country that, has no electricity supply. Electricity. I mean, it's complete madness. Yeah. And, and that's just the start of all those deals. Uh, and it's, I mean, uh, again, we come back to to the
1: to how the public has been misled on yeah. this. And I think a lot of people thinking, oh, well, just no deal then. We, we just That doesn't mean we're not going to do it. We're yeah. still going to do it. We're just going to do it in the worst way possible. And
2: it will be absolutely unforgivable. A generation will not forget that it was the Tory party that took us to this position and they will be out of power mm. for a very long time. And you know, you look at the figures of what Remain versus Leave, if you poll Old people now, and it's sixty forty um, to remain. Uh, and at some point, somebody needs to take a deep breath and say, "Well, it's you know, the, the, um, the Tories are talking about the idea that it's going to be civil unrest, if there it's civil unrest, if there was another vote, or if Article Fifty were withdrawn, or some other mechanism was used to slow this down." I would put it to you that that civil civil unrest will be coming from this very small hardcore that, in fact, are probably their own members. They're trying to save themselves from a rebellion within their own party, which is a very, very small part of the British population. Mm. When you're at 60-40, remain to leave, um, you go back to Keynes, which is, you know, when the facts change, uh, I change my mind. What do you do, sir or madam? Theresa May, at this point in time, uh, she's just carrying on on the original course. Political
1: self-interest or the greater good, Mm. and it would seem that that self-interest is what's winning out here.
0: Uh, Very well said, both. Uh, Well, if you have been enjoying some digital downtime over the recent holiday period, perhaps away from Brexit, uh, new guidance from the UK's Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health suggests that being glued to your phone, tablet or laptop screen might not be as unhealthy as many people fear, the healthy bo- the health body rather says that for children specifically, screen time should be balanced with other activities in life. With families choosing where that balance lies. Georgina, did you manage uh, to switch off at all? We, I know you said you um, <laughs> yeah. you did. Uh, you, you do have to sort of keep up with the news and things, but uh, did you get away from your email? Get away from your phone, uh, computer?
1: I tried not to wake up in the middle of the night to mm-hmm. check what Donald Trump was tweeting. Treat- <laughs> um, so that was that, that was a, a kind of con- Session. Uh, no, I'm afraid I was as glued as ever, and in fact, possibly more so, because I kept checking. thinking, but where are all the emails? And getting slightly paranoid that nobody was actually contacting me. The news carried on, however. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, it did. Uh, and and one thing, of course, that people always do over this time is surveys, because they're quite easy to roll out. You're not, right. you know, you can write them up in advance or whatever. Um, and I think the survey, the survey is interesting because it's just one of, of a lot of others. I mean, there's a, there's a difference at the um, in the Lancet, the the medical journal, the child and adolescent health says so children who use smartphones and other devices for fewer than two hours a day perform better on cognitive tests. So I think that, that's a, a, another, mm. a, a different view. Uh, then you have the American Academy of Pediatrics who say that uh, you've got to then temper screen time dependent on the age of the child. And I think it always just does come down to being sensible about it. I mean, I think we hearken back to a a time when we were all playing in the fields or running in the streets or whatever it was. I don't know about you, but my childhood wasn't particularly like Mm. that. I mean, where I grew up, yes, there was quite a lot of outdoor time, but it wasn't... If a screen had been available, and I'm sure I would have, you know, done it, we don't know how this pans out. This is a new era for all of us. I
2: had a television, uh, I mean, there was a television, and I can tell you, my sister and I were absolutely glued to it at every point in time, and there was... I mean, I think there was a programme which was called... Turn off your television and go out and do something else instead. So (laughs) it's part of kind of, you know, it's a general crisis whenever a piece of, whenever some sort of technology arrives and everybody says, this is not what children should be doing. Um, Having said that, we're trying to, to. create a generation who are digitally literate and capable of actually working in a kind of new digitally enhanced world. And so if you sit there and say, well, actually, no, I'm terribly sorry, you can't actually learn about that world. Could you go back to pen and paper and books? Um, they won't be particularly well equipped mm. for it. Um, but this is, this, I think this is a cult movement. I mean, I've been reading this book called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, Julia Hobsbawm, who we both know does the social health. There's somebody who's been contacting me who runs Conscious Digital. And it feels like the kind of latest kind of Gwyneth Paltrow goop movement. So first of all, you've got to cut out gluten from your diet. Now right. you've got to cut out your phone. Mm, and uh, get
1: some kind of interesting egg, I believe. If really? You're talking about yeah. <laughs> um, but a, a, another survey actually says that uh, it's responsible for depression in teenage girls. Right. And, I, and I do see that. I mean, there's a lot of FOMO, the whole fear of missing out thing, having a perfect Instagram feed and all the rest of it and they do say that, that this is, and I can see it actually before my eyes, impacting negatively on the mental health, not only of, of, of teenagers but also of adults I think that you can get really caught up in other people's feeds and in, in, in this whole thing of people living their best life which of course they do do online why would you present anything less than, than your best self? People, that's, that's human nature but it does make other people feel sad. But we have also done that with the
2: keeping up with the Joneses, so it used to be yeah. money being ploughed into your kind of, you know, making you home look the most sparkling your frocks look the most sparkling your party invitations look the best so you know it's just the the next layer of doing that and again I would counter you and say well you know if marketing is everything um, it's actually a very good skill to feel that sense of competition to get a good Instagram feed for the for the next generation mm.
1: well that's that's very true there's there's a there's one particular person I follow uh, Bryony Gordon who I'm sure many people mm. have heard she's an author she also has a a, a newspaper column uh, and she does the thing where she takes a picture of herself looking just as she looks absolutely no filter no nothing and I think she kind of goes out of her way to make sure that she's not looking her most attractive in her feed and that's her kind of thing and her, her message out there is it doesn't matter you've just you, you know don't don't turn mm. present anyone other than yourself which is
2: which is one way to to counteract this kind of mental ill health that's mm. sweeping through My Instagram feed does incredibly well um, mm. it, I have no pictures on it whatsoever and I have about <laughs> two hundred and fifty followers and they keep oh, turning up every day. <laughs>
0: Well, show me something real, as uh, Kendrick Lamar put it. I always try to quote Kendrick Lamar on the show. I don't know why. But uh, what do you think, Georgina, about the, about the the hard rules, the actual set of guidelines for for, for parents and, and what the rules should be for their kids in screen time? Do you buy that? Should it be case by case? Or do we need uh, perhaps a national strategy? What do you think of that?
1: I mean, I think a, a national strategy is a good starting point for us to, to know exactly what the risks are and how we might counter that if there are some guidelines that are published. But of course, it, not, it's... could never be one size fits all it's Mm. different for different children different circumstances I also think it's really important what are your children looking at you know you can say or you you can't be online you can be online for five minutes and see something really really disturbing it doesn't matter if you're there for hours or or a very short time if you're looking at the wrong kind of thing or indulging in the wrong kind of thing you can learn such a huge amount as as Jo is pointing out Mm. you know from from just browsing the web if you're doing that and enhancing your your life in a way then that's great so I, I also think that the rules are kind of unenforceable what are you going to do you know there's no nationwide shutdown it it, it, it can't be big brother controlled and in terms of of parents well once your kids in their room i mean yes you can switch off the internet but who who was telling that lovely story the other day about uh, children who came in and their father made them dump their phone uh, as they came in so that he knew that they were absolutely offline the whole time they were at home turned out he'd been dumping a dummy he had his real phone in his pocket all the time
0: well uh, that's funny playing with my my nephew uh, 18 months old over the over the holidays and he kept picking up things around the house he's on FaceTime a lot with everyone in the family so he, he's used to that idea of outside connection and what the screen can do I guess at a young age but he kept pick, picking up things around the house even if they're off the remote control the mouse and and like saying hello to it like as if he could <laughs> as, if he, could, as if he could talk to people but he doesn't watch television I will say we were watching sports and he was absolutely mesmerized so that was a whole other world another experience but
2: uh,
1: that's what it's done mm. with, with television. Is uh, My daughter now, I mean, she's a huge Doctor Who fan, which was on television the other night. And I said, oh, Doctor Who's starting in five minutes. Come down, it's starting in three minutes now. She's like, mum... I don't have to follow the television schedule. I'll just watch mm. it when it's convenient for me. <laughs> and that's one huge revolution. I love that appointment to view. It feels like a kind of communal thing. I love the whole thing where we're sitting around over Christmas watching television and the Queen's speech always starts at three o'clock. I'm not going to go and download it at five past four. <laughs>
0: Uh, Continuing today's discussion on the best way to spend your downtime, perhaps book sales in 2018 saw another strong year. In the UK alone, book sales accounted for £1.63 billion, according to Sales Monitor, Monitor rather, Nielsen Bookscan, with big titles such as Michelle Obama's Becoming, helping sales growth for the fourth year in a row. Uh, Georgina, your monocle's authority on recommended readings. Uh, What's going on here?
1: Uh, It's hard to tell isn't Mm. it? But the thing is that this is not a shock rise. It's been rising steadily for about the last four years and I think that there are many things that that play into it. One of the things we were just talking about, this kind of virtue signaling and wanting to to look great is part of it because nobody knows what you're reading if it's a Kindle. Uh, But if you're sitting there with war and peace on your lap, Mm. people will be a little bit more impressed. Uh, Physical books uh, are also, I think, objects of beauty. Publishers invest a lot in them. They're getting in great designers and things like that. They're a desirable thing that you want to own. And I also think that we are seeing a whole movement against Amazon, but against against big corporations generally. If you can even tie that into sort of veganism and 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 all of this move for for a simpler life. And I think that that's taking us back to, to books as well, mm. uh, hardback sales in particular. I mean, I think we'll come on later to to why books sell and, and which books they are, yeah. because I think that that feeds into it too. But but certainly, we are wanting to move away from our screens. I think adults in particular rather than teens here uh, and 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 just have a break and pick something up that you can actually feel mm. yeah I mean at,
2: at Christmas I think some of the longest cues I saw were for cheese and for books in Daunt's books up the road yeah um, You know, sort of 20 deep. Uh, And I I downloaded some books on Kindle over Christmas, and I have just a continual sense of guilt as I read them that I should actually have a kind of a hard copy that's slowly getting dog eared because it's part of kind of reattaching to the physical world and feeling like you've actually Mm. touched something, you've actually um, dirtied it, you've broken its spine, and that you've actually achieved something. Whereas, you know, the digital screen, it's very hard to capture what you've been doing. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, we love uh, talking about retail here, of course, at Monocle and, and the buzz around. Daunt Books, as you say, specifically during December, was incredible to mm-hmm. see. That place is packed all the time with people uh, looking for books. Uh, I wonder, Joy, are our fears about the demise of publishing behind this? Or do you think it's, uh, you know, fears about uh, being on our computers and smartphones too much and how it's affecting our well-being? What do you think's behind, the, you know, the the, 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 in, the continu- c- continued interest in books?
2: Well, I think... Sorry. If you sort of go back kind of 40, 50, 60 years, there's sort of finite amount of stuff you can actually read. There's a finite amount of words. And, you know, every book that was in my household, and there weren't many when I was growing up, were kind of highly valued and highly prized. Now, given the internet and the sheer volume of information you come that comes at you... Um, even Twitter in the mornings, when I used to start work at seven in the mornings, I estimated that I read about 50,000 words by 10 o'clock every morning. So, but those end up feeling like junk food by comparison. So when you do start talking about a book, you are talking about a kind of quality time with quality words that you actually absorb um, mm. and a kind of switching off from that constant stream that you aren't really paying any attention to.
0: Georgina, what is uh, behind this? What's actually selling? What are the the big bestsellers?
1: You know, I, th- I think this is really interesting. I think that um, as Johnny Geller, who's a very big agent here, points out, people want uplit uh, or uplifting literature. Mm. Uh, and that's that's behind Gail Honeyman, who's a debut author. Her book Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, has done incredibly well. But I think you can dissect that even more and have a look at when it was published. So if you publish books in the sort of deep midwinter in January or you publish them in perhaps mid-April, so uh, um, uh, Honeyman's book... Is selling at least three hundred thousand copies more than any sort of contemporary lit of of the same uh, of the same genre. Mm. Uh, she sold a lot more, and that comes down to time of the year. I think that's really really important in publishing. You have longer then she had eleven months longer for any who published later than to hit to hit the bestseller. So so that's one thing, and the fact that it was uplifting. The other thing is looking at uh, again this this move away this political movement this conscientizing. Oh, horrible word! I'm so sorry. <laughs> is it even a word? <laughs> what well, it is now? Um, but 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 but, this, but people thinking more deeply about things. And what are they thinking about? They're thinking about politics. Yeah. Hence Michelle Obama's book, also Fire and Fury. Um, the the book about Trump and and those were were the next two big runaway bestsellers and the other one was by Adam Kay who was an NHS doctor turned comedian Uh, and again he was talking about something that really matters to us which is the crisis in the health service. He he outsold Michelle Obama in this country Mm. in fact because people really want to know people are now, I feel, thanks to Brexit, much more politically engaged and really are are trying to find out for themselves what the issues are and I think this is bleeding over into, into to what we read. Going back to Amazon, though, uh, um, Amazon uh, independent booksellers were up. Um, but the problem here is that although publishing revenues are up, uh, authors' money isn't. And I think that's down to Amazon, who have held down prices of, of physical books right. for so long. So although you're selling many more books, the advances that you're getting are absolutely negligible. I mean, I think an author, the average earning for an author is £11,000 a year. Nobody can survive, unless you're J.K. Rowling, on on writing alone. Everybody's supplementing by teaching or broadcasting or, or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, the, the figures look rosy for the publishing industry. They're not rosy for the authors themselves.
0: I wonder, though, I, I wanted to just ask you, when you. When When you talk to authors about the actual physical book and you touched earlier on the design and you know people want to see it and, and, and feel it but are authors concerned then about the physical circulation of their books still
1: oh absolutely i mean one one thing an author hates you to say is i loved your book i borrowed it from a friend um, mm. you need to buy the book the book needs to be in circulation i don't think they care if it's on kindle or or whatever but but buy the book that so the author at least gets their paltry percentage mm. from that and of course they're really concerned that it's out there i mean there's no greater joy for for an author I think, than, than sitting on a tube, seeing somebody somebody read your book, mm. uh, and and that's another thing about the, what we were talking about: screen versus uh, uh, the physical book. I mean, don't you sit on the tube,
2: join, like peer over and look oh, at yeah, what no, people I, are I'm reading? Desperately c- curious about what they've got, <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah, and particularly actually pacey novels, I try and catch, jump in and try and figure out what's going on. It's kind mm. of you know with three or four pages only.
0: You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Joy Ladiko and Georgina Godwin. Coming up next, we look at one woman's very expensive quest to find her lost dog.
2: What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan. Building on the Past, playing now in the film section at Monocle.com. <laughs>
0: Still with me, Georgina Godwin and Joy Ladico. If there's a couple of things that the retail market has come to rely on in recent years, it's that Apple products sell well, and many of them sell in China. But the company reduced its revenue expectations for the first time in a decade and a half yesterday, citing falling sales in China as one of the prominent causes of the reassessment. Shares in Apple took a 10% hit as a result. Joy, are we starting to see the end of the retail love affair
2: with Apple, do you think? Well, I don't know how many Apple uh, phones have we got in this studio at the moment. I've certainly got one. Yeah. Uh, I can see another Apple product in front of me. Um, the the, the it, actually sales are still rising. Uh, sales of iPads still rising. The rest of the world is doing mm. fine. It's actually just China where it's, there has yeah. been uh, a stalling, and that's partly because the top end of the China. Uh, economy seems to be stalling. It's also because it's got big competition from this uh, company called, which I can't pronounce, Huawei, Huawei thank yeah. you very much, which has taken, uh, it's rising by that sort of 13% a year um, in China. It's selling products of the same quality as the iPhone for half the mm-hmm. price. And so I think what you're seeing is not just a slowdown in China, but also a rise in their technological capabilities. And the fact that actually there are now a number of phones on the market, including something like the Google Pixel, um, which actually rival the iPhone. So... Suddenly, what had been a complete standard of the hipsters around the world <laughs> is not.
0: Is is no more. Uh, Georgina, have we reached peak upgrade fatigue, do you think, on, on, on clamouring for new new devices?
1: I, I do. And and again, I think it goes back to this whole thing of rejecting big brands mm. and of just wanting to live a simpler life. You've got a perfectly working, working iPhone. They are so expensive. Uh, there is an economic downturn. Why would you get the next, next one just for a slightly better picture
2: quality I, I or actually whatever? I actually rebooted. So I'm on an iPhone 6. I actually rebooted my old 5, 5S the other day. Ah. It worked absolutely fine. In fact, it was nicer. And I'm about to go and dig out my 5C. Because, <laughs> just go back. <laughs> just go, I'm literally going backwards on the upgrades, which is the last thing Apple wants to hear from us.
0: Oh, I considered just going back to the, the Nokia. And so I could just be <laughs> on my email or a, a solution to being off social media in the new year. But uh, uh, interesting time for, for Apple. We will see what their next strategy is. Finally, I just want to make sure we have time for this last topic. A tale of a runaway pooch who has been living in the woods of Suffolk in the UK. The dog was lost by its owner, who has now spent thousands on efforts to recapture the pet. Uh, Interestingly, called China. No relation to our previous story, including enlisting drones, specialist trackers, and even a marksman to try and tranquilize the dog. Georgina, would you go to these lengths to, to, to... Try and track down your dog uh, spending, you know, close to what was it,
1: 8,000 pounds or something like that? She spent, I would certainly go to every measure that I possibly could to, to find my dog. I think that, that, that I, I, I well, she was nearly here tonight, actually. Mm. I just didn't quite bring her. I have a, a very close relationship with my dog, but as, as, as do most dog owners. But I think that the, the odd thing about this story is that she's seen the dog a couple of times and come quite close to it. Yeah. And I think it ran away after it was traumatized by an event. But the the fact that the dog then doesn't want to come back—I think most dogs that that have been humanised—I mm. I don't know if that's the right word—but the, the, a dog that loves you, sure, it's going to be freaked out by something, but it is going to come back to you. That's that's the the nature of dogs. Is when they when they love you and they've got a lovely home and mm. things, they they do generally want to come back. It sounds like this dog may have other issues.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, my my dog. Can go a long way on a sort of full turning circle around me, but I'm still the center of his world. The idea that he would go and run and hide in the woods something rather dramatic uh, would have happened. Um, dogs basically rely on human beings they are they've always been semi-socialized they've always lived around kind of towns and villages kind of living off humans. For a dog to go back into the woods is like going is turning it into a you know a different species it's turning it into kind of almost like a wolf child. It's mm. kind of the mowgli of dogs um, that's going on. Um, how much money would I spend on getting my dog back? Um, I probably spend money on a good whistle and, um...
1: (laughs) I, I, I don't think we should joke about this because it, so somebody just sent me a thing today about a Chihuahua that was stolen in Northampton uh, yesterday, uh, and they're really really upset. They're trying to get it back, but dog napping is a thing, and now everybody knows oh, yeah. there's a price on our dogs.
2: <laughs> well, you've just named your price. I've named my price as a whistle, and that's it. You know, <laughs> frankly, he cost me so much a year that um, you know another five thousand to find him again. You yeah. should know where his supper is. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. They generally would. I mean, they would come back for their
1: food and and. Uh, uh, best friend I think in many circumstances but I think we also have to to remember that actually they are animals at heart and I think we anthropomorphize them at our peril Mm-hmm.
0: Mm, well, very well said. Uh, from a uh, a few dog people here, uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Joy Ladeko and Georgina Godwin, thank you both so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Tom Hall, research by Daphne Carnesis and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was Cassie Galpin. More music next. And then at 1900 hours, it is The Menu with Mr. Marcus Hippie. And be sure to tune in to The Globalist with Georgina on Monday morning, 7 a.m. London time as we get back to a full week of regular, regularly scheduled programming here at Monocle 24. Midori House back at the same time Monday, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening. Have a nice weekend and goodbye.